It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. If you missed today's show, we had a really interesting conversation about pipelines. We heard from one environmentalist who takes a somewhat pragmatic approach to these projects. And we talked to the Puck Daddy himself about John Scott's appearances, actually his MVP performance at the NHL All-Star Game. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge Monday to Friday, 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. So, uh, Rob, did anything else happen when I was away? Like, did they get a gigantic oil straw from Alberta's oil sands to Quebec built? Yeah, we're working on that. Okay. We're working on that. Well, you were here, of course, when we, we first had opportunity to talk about Denny Coderre and the Montreal mayor. Mm-hmm. And the, what, 80 other Montreal yeah. area mayors? <laughs> what is going on? They all came out against uh, Energy East. Uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, the federal government has announced new rules that will make the review process more thorough. It is probably going to delay a decision on Energy East and, and the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project, but it doesn't force them to, to start over. But, I mean, the question is, in, in the face of all of this opposition, is is the federal government prepared to go to bat and say, you know what, once these pipelines are approved, we're going to make sure that they happen? Well, I would hope so. I mean, listen, one thing that happened when I was off, and, and I was in a part of the world that doesn't get much news, but I did see Rick Mercer do a rant, which generally means that the liberals are going to do whatever he says. Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> if only. It's like Rick Mercer does a rant, the conservatives do the opposite, and then the left, they go with Rick Mercer. So I thought the problem was solved. You're telling me we're still at square one here? That's too Well, that bad. got a ton of reaction. Sure uh, Rick Mercer's uh, rant about uh, Energy East and the importance of looking at these in the national interest, uh, but got a lot of pushback from people who say, gee, you know, I mean, um, Rick, normally we, we like what you say, but uh, now you're some, some radical pro-pipeline, pro-industry sellout, and now we hate you. See, the... the I'm not a huge Rick Mercer fan for a couple of reasons, but one thing I've always admired about Rick Mercer is that he he observes the world in which he lives, and he calls it as he sees it. And I think that when he did that pipeline rant, what he was basically saying was, this is how it is. Canada is a resource exporting country. We've got a lot of good stuff in the ground. We get it out. We sell it. We make money. We make the world a better place. That just happens to be Canada's lot in the world. And to try to go through, like, tr- to try to transition into this fairy tale existence where we no longer have to, quote, dig crap out of the ground and set it on fire, end quote, and just let the sun and the wind do all our heating and powering is ridiculous in the year 2015. It's impractical in the year 2015. It's a laudable goal, but that's kind of like saying, you know what, I'm going to go to Rio, I'm going to win the marathon. Right. You have to do all of the work that gets you there. Now, if we give the benefit of the doubt to both the Premier and the Prime Minister, they believe pipelines are important, they believe that a, a more thorough process, more of a recognition of the environmental issues, actually makes these pipelines an easier sell, I'm willing to see that put to the test, right? It's because it's fair to say that under the conservatives provincially and federally, we didn't get pipelines built. If these parties, the New Democrats in Alberta, the liberal, liberals federally, can take a different approach and make these pipelines easier to, to sell to Canadians, I'm willing to wait and see if that's going to work. And it seems as though that's what they're arguing. But it all comes back to them supporting these pipelines, being willing to fight for these pipelines, because they're going to be those who are going to oppose them no matter what. Let's bring uh, let's bring our guest into this program now. Blair King joins us. Uh, he writes a blog, keeps a blog called The Chemist in Langley. Um, and we, we first had Blair on this program back when there was this 
ridiculous myth going around Facebook that Nestle is basically stealing water from uh, from Canada. And Blair set us straight. He told us uh, the straight goods on the matter, and uh, we appreciated that. We got him back this time around because, uh, Blair, you've been rather outspoken on your blog about why we uh, should take a more pragmatic approach to these pipeline projects, uh, specifically the Energy East pipeline. And thank you very much for having me back. Uh, I, having just listened to you to speak, I once again agree with what you're saying. We have to recognize that we have natural resources that help maintain the standard of living that we've become accustomed to. And exploiting those natural resources, everyone hates that word, but that's ultimately what we do. We take advantage of the natural resources in order to pay for our lifestyles. And that's not to say we can't do it in a sustainable and environmentally friendly way, but we do have to acknowledge that one of the things that Canada does really well is extract natural resources and make them available to our trading partners in Asia and in Europe. Well, is it realistic to to believe that if we don't build the pipelines, we we keep the stuff in the ground? If we keep the stuff in the ground, we have to rely on something else to to service our energy needs, that somehow blocking pipelines is the path to this post-carbon economy? No, uh, the as I mentioned in my blog, the the, re- the reality is that anyone who's been in Calgary knows there has been a lot of money spent developing oil sands and also traditional oil in Alberta and Saskatchewan. That is sunk costs. Those that oil will get out because ultimately. Whether you're, you're selling it at $100 a barrel or selling it at $30 a barrel, you have to pay your mortgage. And when Suncor puts $20 billion into a facility, they aren't just going to let that facility sit idle when that facility can generate fuel. Happily for the oil companies, there is a lot of oil by rail capacity, both in Canada and much greater being developed and having been developed in the United States. So if you don't use pipelines, the alternative is exists, the capacity exists, it's just a matter of uh, of them putting it on the rails. Blair, let's talk a little bit about um, the dependency that the country has on this industry for just a second here, because I think there's this willingness, it's almost this willingness for some environmentalists to believe that if you flick the switch, there would be no consequences. But, I mean, you just mentioned the mortgage that Suncor would pay on a $20 billion facility. There's also the mortgage that Suncor employees would pay on their homes. Well, not just that. When we talk about, we we often get confused in this discussion about the difference between electricity and energy. British Columbia, we brag about being a a hydro-powered province, except that's only hydroelectricity. And electricity makes up less than 30% of our actual energy use. The vast majority of the energy we use on a day-to-day basis is based on fossil fuels. If we were to shut down fossil fuels tomorrow, as some have suggested would be an interesting idea, we would lose our transportation system, we would lose our petrochemical system, we would lose our ability to make the vast majority of the drugs that keep us healthy, the medical supplies that we use to in our hospitals, and as you mentioned, no, the vast majority of Canadians would run out of money. Run, uh, they wouldn't be able to go to work. They wouldn't be able to pay their mortgages. And we would, frankly, be thrown into our anarchy. 
So that it's not a question of relying on oil versus not relying on oil. That right now the question before us is relying on new pipelines versus relying on rail and old pipelines. Well, yes, I would take it slightly differently. We do recognize that that climate change is a real thing. Uh, it may not be going as fast as some claim, but it is a real thing, and we do have to, as a as a nation, ag- address it. And our con- and we signed the Paris Agreement. We've agreed that this is something we will do. The tr- the recognition is that it is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take decades to move ourselves off of fossil fuels, and until that happens, we need to get the fossil fuels to market in the safest, most environmentally sensitive way. And that means pipelines. Right. It's as simple as that. That, that means pipelines. Um, Blair, you know, I look at this, I look at Canada's place in the, in the universe, if you will. I look at Canada's place in the world right now, and I take time into that consideration. It, it appears to me that Canada has this very brief opportunity in time to exploit its resource wealth for what it's worth, which is, you know, today. We've got to get the oil out of the ground while it's a fossil fuel, a carbon-dependent economy. And we will eventually transition away from oil. Every fuel has been a bridge fuel to get us to the fuel that we're on right now. But do you you see it that way, too, that Canada's got to make hay because the sun is shining right now? Well, yes and no, because the recognition is that Canada has vast resources and resources that we aren't tapping that we could make use of as well as oil. Alberta and British Columbia have tremendous geothermal energy resources that they could exploit. We have our we the rare in order to make all this renewable uh, energy, we need rare earth metals. Alberta, British Columbia, and Quebec are rich in those metals. We just choose not to extract them because we find it easier to let the Chinese do so. Be- because the extraction process is dirtier than we would prefer. So rather than spend the money to find a clean way of doing it, we choose to allow the Chinese to devastate Mongolia, and then we will make use of the rare earths in our wind farms and our uh, wind farms and our solar panels. The, we talk about solar panels being unaffordable in Canada. The reason they're unaffordable is because the, the Chinese produce them in mass-produced factories using coal, uh, as an electricity source, if we all, we do have resources, we should continue to use them. And as Canadians, we should be thinking if we're buying oil, which we we need, we should be thinking about buying Canadian oil first. Because frankly, I'm not terribly interested in sending uh, $200 billion to the Saudis uh, to fill the eastern refineries so they could even if they are willing to turn around and buy uh, the Jeeps or the armored personnel carriers that we're willing to sell them, because I know what's going to happen with those armored personnel carriers. So as a moral Canadian, I see a necessity to choose where we get our fuel from, and that means choosing Canadian. Right, and as you say, I mean, there, there are refineries on the East Coast that, that Energy East would, would help serve, and there's one right in Montreal, and it's one of the interesting points you make on, on your blog, Blair, is that, okay, wait a second, Montreal has a refinery, so where's the oil coming from? How's it getting to Montreal? And then how do we compare that with, with what Mayor Coderre was saying last week? 
Well, you're absolutely correct. There are actually three major refineries in uh, Montreal. They currently are making use of fuel via a 74-year-old pipeline from Portland, Montreal, as well as the railway line, which the the railway line which gave us Lac Mégantic and Gogomas and and the other recent tragedies on the rail. Uh, Energy East, the Montreal Lateral and the Levis Lateral are designed to supply those refineries with the fuel they need uh, without relying on a 74-year-old American pipeline, which is shipping fuel directly from the Middle East uh, to the uh, to those refineries. Similarly, the oil by rail, rather than using Canadian Bakken fuel, they're using uh, American Bakken fuel because the, that's where the railways are coming from. So once again, we have the we have the alternative by by Canadian or by foreign. There's also a, uh, what I believe is a, you call it a myth in one of your blog posts too, that, that Alberta oil isn't the right kind of oil for uh, Montreal's refineries. Is, is that a myth? Well, yes and no. Uh, as we know, Alberta makes more than one type of oil. Uh, a lot of the activists don't understand the oil industry and don't understand the difference between sin crude and bitumen and traditional oil. Now, the two of the refineries in Montreal are dependent on what's called high API uh, fuels. Now, that's the sort of fuel that you would see out of the Bakken uh, formation, and that's where Saskatchewan would come into play. Suncor, which, as you know, is a big player in Alberta, is also one of the owners of the refineries in Montreal. And Suncor has looked, has been planning on building a coker in their facility in Montreal so that they can use their fuel that they generate in Alberta to generate gasoline for Eastern Canada in their refinery and therefore get rid of the middleman in the process. So certainly not the refineries cannot handle at this time heavy bitumen but that's not the only thing that Alberta produces and that's not the only thing that Energy East is supposed to transport across the country I'm curious what you make of you know the, the refining and, and upgrading question because it seems to me we, we've got refineries in the east that, that have that capacity there are, there are refineries in the Gulf Coast that have that capacity we seem to have this fetish here in Alberta around refining and upgrading enough so that it's exempt from uh, the CO2 cap that the government's planning on, on putting in place for, for the industry, that we seem to be at, at working at opposite ends here, that we want to reduce emissions, but we want to see more refineries built, that we want to invest money in uh, new technology, green technology, and we're prepared to sink billions into to more refineries. Well, recognize that refineries are not cheap things. They're in fantastically expensive investments that only work if they're huge. The reason the Gulf Coast of the United States is where we send our heavy fuel for is because they've invested the, the hundreds of billions of dollars to develop these refineries, and those refineries are right now all tu a refinery is tuned to the input that it's expecting. Those ref those uh, refineries in the U.S. Gulf Coast are tuned to heavy fuels. If they don't get it from Canada, they'll be getting it from Venezuela. When we talk about export from uh, export from Energy East, what we're talking about is going taking the oil that would have gone through Keystone and sending it via water to, the, once again, those Gulf Coast refineries so that they can work. As I said, though, 
if you want to build a refinery in Alberta, you're talking about a fantastic investment, uh, in fa- a fantastically large investment that may or may not pay off because we know that oil produ- that uh, our capacity in North America is tuned pretty finely to the to the demand. If you add more capacity, all you're going to do is flood demand. And we do know that as we are moving gradually and slowly weaning ourselves off fossil fuels, demand will go down. So you could end up building a fantastic new facility that doesn't that isn't able to get the the payback to pay for the facility because ultimately you only build a refinery if you think you can make money and if you have to invest 20 billion dollars to build a refinery you sure sure as heck better be able to make 20 billion dollars out of it yeah no kidding yeah uh blair we just want to take a break here and uh, keep you on the line we're gonna do another segment with you if you don't mind standing by please blair king is our guest uh a chemist in langley is uh his blog google that and you can find out what he's got to say about the energy east pipeline or stay tuned we'll get into uh a little bit more of this conversation with blair king it's king and breckenridge on news talk 770 Oh, we're back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770 in conversation with Blair King, a chemist in Langley. You can find him on the web, some really thoughtful posts uh, from the last week or so about Energy East and, and some of these related debates. Uh, Blair, I know you know a lot of people have been uh, linking to these and posting about them. What kind of reaction have you been getting? I've re- got a bit of a reaction off both sides of the issue. Uh, primarily, I've had uh, people who feel that we are not moving fast enough and who uh, to move ourselves off fossil fuels. There is a, a, a strong lobby out there, as you know, that says that we should be moving much faster off fossil fuels. I've noticed that for the most part, they speak a lot, uh, but they seldom give me numbers. Uh, the one recognition I, I point out very obviously I'm a pragmatist. I I am an environmentalist. I care about us moving towards a sustainable uh, future, but I'm a pragmatist and I can do numbers. And the numbers say that we are in a situation where we need to uh, move move in a steady manner, but in a measured manner, uh, going to where we're uh, going to a lower reliance on fossil fuels. You know, color this in a little bit for me, Blair. Like, what what would it take? And I know it's a small question with a really big long answer, but I always think about when when people say, "Hey, we got to transition to clean energy" or something like that. I think of Elon Musk, right, who's trying to get these Tesla cars to be cheap enough and ubiquitous, and he's pouring a ton of research and money into it. It's not something you just snap your fingers to do. So what would it take to get us off hydrocarbons? Well, there's an interesting scientist out of uh, Stanford called Mark Jacobson, who who is he's a evangelist for uh, sun, solar, wind, and uh, he is, he has done some papers which suggest a pathway towards 100% uh, fossil fuel free. Unfortunately, the papers show that it's pretty darn expensive. Uh, the he looks at sun, solar, and wave technologies, and as I point out at my blog, it, to do that sort of transition is fantastically expensive. Uh, solar power, wind power, they are, they are the power of the future, but they also are fantastically expensive and are reliant on all sorts of technologies. Uh, the, I did the calculations for how much wind, how much it would cost just to get us 
the wind power we need for his plan, and it came out to 2.6% uh, of our, our gross domestic product uh, for the next 16 years. Uh, if you think about that, we're in the hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, not including the fact that we need to do that sort of work, means we have to change our transmission systems. It means we actually have to connect all our communities to transmission grids because you can't go off fossil fuels if you don't have access to the electricity that's being built everywhere. So it, we put a lot of money into research but that we are not at a position right now where we can get there in any reasonable measure. Well, how do we get there longer term? In longer term, we, we, each country does what we do best. Central Canada has, Quebec has hydropower and lots of it. Ontario has nuclear, and this is one thing that a lot of the environmentalists shut off the, shut the door on, is nuclear, except that Anyone who has done any math on energy recognizes that we cannot go a future without uh, an electrical future without a heavy investment in nuclear. Uh, British Columbia and Alberta, we have geothermal, we have solar, we have wind. Those are those can go along with different with clean natural gas to get us a long ways to where we need to go. But it means investing on an ongoing basis. It means encouraging investment because, frankly, the only way this is going to happen is if the private sector is involved. The public sector does not have the money to make this happen. There's not a chance that they could. One of the real problems with all the activists out there is they tend to be anti-capitalists, and they tend to think that capitalism is a bad thing. The problem is capitalism is what motivates uh, Motive, uh, it, it gets money out there. Okay. They can, and if you make it a profitable investment or potential for profitability, the the, not, the private sector will invest and they will do it. But the activists tend to be very strongly government run, and they tend to think that everything should be run by government. And we know what happens when you try and do huge projects run by governments. <laughs> oh, come on. N name, name one, Blair. Uh, actually, you know what? Don't. It's a good thing we're out of time. And <laughs> hey, thanks so much for uh, for the time today, Blair. Much appreciated. Uh, thanks a lot. All right. That's good stuff. Uh, Blair King, uh, chemist in Langley. Yeah, I'm, uh, we're, during the news to 1030, Rob, let's, uh, we'll, we'll write down all the government projects that have been boondoggles. Well, are we going to get this, uh, by the way, are we going to get this uh, news conference at uh, 11 o'clock, by yeah. the sounds of it? Yeah, by the sounds of it, absolutely. The NDP coming down with an announcement uh, that will stimulate economic diversification in this province. Well, I think we're going to build a refinery that's going to be so large that it's going to have room for a rink in it. <laughs> Football field. <laughs> that's great. It's going to be a win-win for everybody. It's going to be tremendous. Uh, after the news to 10.30. So that's coming up at 11. We're going to uh, do our best to carry that for you live. Uh, have they been pretty good at getting to the podium on time? Uh, no. A little tardy on Friday, <laughs> I think. Uh, so we'll do our best to get that to you in a timely fashion after the news to 11 o'clock. After the news to 10.30, we're going to check in with our buddy Leo, who received an acting award and was promptly asked about the environment. And do you think he said, oh, uh, let me talk about what I know? Uh-uh. Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, maybe a re rerun of your breakfast after the news to 1030. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Right, welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. 
Uh, we're still chasing a story for 12 o'clock about these new Barbie dolls. I guess they decided that um, you know Barbie needs to look a little more like people actually look. And maybe that'll get kids excited. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what they've been complaining about. No, listen, there's, there's, there's two things going on. One is that all that really interesting research that they've done with kids and dolls and how kids perceive the world around them through dolls. And that stuff's kind of shocking when you, you know, watch the videos. I think they call that the Clark experiment. Um, uh, but then there's this other thing. And this is why I say the Washington Redskins should change their team name. This, this is a profitable play for Barbie. It's an ailing brand anyway. So for them to say, hey, you know, to, to try to refresh this way and seize a news story, become a news story. I think it's a really brilliant play, and that's, that's why I, I encourage the Washington Redskins to change their team name as well. Yeah, like, right. I mean, seeming like you're socially progressive in some way can be uh, a, a real good marketing ploy. And other companies have done it, and so maybe it's not surprising that Mattel's doing it too. So we'll talk about that later on. But uh, how about uh, the weekend that was in Nashville? Uh, new format for the All-Star Game, which is, uh, you know, certainly a, a break from what they've done in the past, and, and it was, it was entertaining, uh, the three on three tournament, but, the big story was the guy that the NHL fought tooth and nail to keep out of the All-Star game before finally relenting and allowing John Scott, currently of the St. John's Ice Caps of the AHL, to appear at the NHL All-Star game. Scored two goals, was on the winning team, was named MVP. It was perfect. He couldn't have, he couldn't have scripted it any better. Indeed. Uh, our friend at the uh, Puck Daddy blog at Yahoo.com, Greg Wisinski, uh, spent the entire weekend in Nashville. Greg, did you have a good time in, uh, in town there? <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's my first time here, and it's, it, it was a really, really great time. Just, uh, it reminded me of college where uh, all the bars are just like in one row, and then you just kind of like go from one, one to the other all night. It's fantastic. It's got like one of the best neon sign jungles too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I say that as somebody who lives in Manhattan, it's uh, you know it's, it's, it's a pretty a pretty impressive display for sure. Okay, well, talk about uh, impressive displays with us. How was the All Star Game from your eyes? Well, the All Star Game was fantastic. Uh, the All Star Game was uh, uh, the perfect storm of you know influences that maybe the NHL didn't realize were going to work, like the John Scott thing and the uh, the three on three format being an absolute blockbuster. I mean, the, the writing about that today on on Puck Daddy, it's amazing to think a couple simple tweaks could make all the difference. The simplest one being that the moment that you stop trying to make the All Star Game look like an actual hockey game is the moment when everybody falls in love with it again. And then the you know the complaints about there being no defense and no hitting and all that stuff uh, all of a sudden don't apply when you have a, a format in which there should be no hitting or defense expected. Obviously, everyone's talking about John Scott, and, and we certainly want to talk about it here, too. But, I mean, the, the question then I, I have coming out of this is that had John Scott not been there, would this have been as interesting? It would have been interesting, for sure. I think the new format, like I said, worked. Uh, there was uh, stakes and drama. The players all really enjoyed playing it. Um, there was a sense of pride in, in the way that the NHL structured this thing. Uh, you know, you were playing to not be eliminated, and, and that's a very primal, basic instinct for an NHL player is you want to keep playing uh, and you want to win and you don't want someone to send you home, which is essentially what the first round of this thing on Sunday did. But the Scott thing just sent it to the stratosphere. I mean, it was, it was uh, this amazing 
uh, journey for this guy from being a joke candidate to all of a sudden becoming Joan of Arc, where the uh, uh, Coyotes and the the NHL are trying to you know keep him out of the game, uh, and then you know throughout the whole weekend just uh, displaying maybe uh, more skill and more personality than people expected out of him. Um, so that that whole thing really you know captured the imagination of of, of hockey fans. Um, but the game itself, I think, was was already doing pretty pretty good in uh, in impressing them as well. So, do, do the NHL then do they learn a whole lot of lessons from this All Star Weekend in terms of uh, not only what the game should look like, but uh, how they should treat the fans' wishes and whims? Well, I don't know. It's a tough tough question because honestly, if it was not for the NHL's pushback on this right through the end of the All Star Game, where they leave John Scott's name out of the three options for the MVP vote. And then uh, you have people inside the arena booing the Jumbotron and, and <laughs> chanting MVP every time he touches the puck. At every turn, their, their sort of refusal to accept this John Scott thing is what fueled it. Um, so in a weird way, they're, they're kind of playing the role of heel in this thing, you know, is, is why it worked out the way it did. But as far as lessons learned, um, I, I hope that they understand the format works. And uh, and they keep at it and add tweaks if they need to, um, but uh, you know overall I, I hope that the, if there is a lesson to be learned, it's that it's okay to loosen up. Like this is the fourth format change we've had for the All Star Game since 1998. Um, it's three on three. It's kind of a goofy thing to begin with. You had Vince Gill and Amy Grant working as coaches behind the bench. It's okay <laughs> if a player like John Scott gets into the game uh, because ultimately. His level of enthusiasm and and his kind of common man journey is what resonated with fans more than seeing the same superstars every year kind of go through the motions. It's funny you use pro wrestling terminology because the whole thing kind of had that feel to it. You know, the the NHL coming off as such bad guys, but in the process building up the interest uh, with this, this storybook ending. And, and you know, I, I became kind of cynical as I'm watching John Scott skate in on that breakaway. I'm like, are they, are they really, is that guy really trying to check him? Or are they, you know, they... I, you know, it just—it almost seemed like it was just too perfect, just the the way it was all scripted or seemed to be well, scripted. Well, no, I mean the, the first goal. I mean there was there were people definitely here in Nashville. I thought the first goal was was some uh, questionable defense down low by the team that was uh, playing against Scott's team, and and Scott scoring on his first shift is kind of storybook. But that was a pretty legit snipe. Uh, that second one, he shielded the puck from Duchesne, who was giving him backside pressure, and and then put the puck uh, top corner. Uh, against, I think it was Devin Dubnik, and that was a legit, pretty nice goal right there. Um, but there's no question that, you know, throughout this process, um, Scott has said that he wouldn't be here were it not for the support of his peers, were it not for other players texting him and saying, you got to go. I mean, Patrick Kane, who used to play with Scott in Chicago, was, was really early out, uh, you know, in this process saying he's got to come to the game and be a blast. So there was a ton of support from, from the, the players that were here, for Scott, um, you know, being there by the circumstances he got to that game. And uh, and it, there's no question that there was a, a level of support. I mean, for, for goodness sakes, uh, raising a 275-pound man on your shoulders uh, <laughs> while he's on while he's on skate yeah. uh, at the end of the game was uh, was a pretty pretty indicative of how they felt about the guy. All right, um, do do us a favor, Greg. Stand by. We're going to continue the conversation after a quick break here on Kincaid and Breckenridge News Talk 770. I won't. Hey, welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge. 
We're talking to uh, Greg Wyshynski, who is the Puck Daddy uh, blog writer at yahoosports.com. Um, Greg, I, I look at this as kind of uh, an opportunity for NHL players, like the, the elite players, to look at a blue-collar guy who doesn't get an opportunity to be celebrated a whole lot of times and actually celebrate him because it's kind of a natural thing for them to do. Do, do you see it that way as well? For sure. You know, there, I think there was a certain undercurrent here of, of Scott being, you know, a part of a, a breed of player that's that's being, you know, kind of phased out of the league. He said it himself, the role of, enfor- of, of enforcer is kind of done uh, in the sense that uh, there's no one left to fight, <laughs> you know. So, um, but but to, to talk to some of these guys that are here, they all said, you know, the, the guy that plays six minutes a night is physically imposing. Maybe you feel a little bit safer when you're out there and you know he's on the bench. Maybe you have that guy in your locker room, and you respect the uh, the amount of uh, of punishment that he's taken throughout his career to continue to be a pro. And maybe it's a guy like Scott, who admittedly is you know a cut up and a goof, and, and one of the reasons why when uh, myself and Jeff Merrick helped start this campaign to get him into the All Star game, um, we thought he was a perfect candidate because we thought he'd be in on the joke, and ultimately he was. So there's definitely a a, a, a reexamination of of that kind of player and, and what they mean to the league. And uh, and what they mean to the the their their teammates uh, past and present. Obviously, look, the NHL's loving all the coverage, the great ratings from the game last night. Everybody's talking about it, and nobody's talking about the NFL All Star Game, for example. But how cynical was it though for the NHL that was so against this that then turn around and they're tweeting out pictures of John Scott and calling him a hero and talking about how great it was that they didn't want this in the first place? Well, there's a lot of that, to be honest with you. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of mea culpas. There's a lot of people kind of backtracking on on their criticism of Scott and, and the whole thing that bought him here. I mean, on NBC last night, Jeremy Roenick, who uh, at one point said that John Scott would be as out of place at the NHL All-Star Game as a white man at the Million Man March, had to kind of go over to Scott and and uh, and glad hand and, and, uh, and kind of apologize for being wrong about the whole thing. So... Um, I think the NHL is just another in, in that string that all of a sudden realizes what happened, what they had, and, and how it all worked out uh, for the best. Um, but, I, but, you know, Scott said throughout the process that, uh, you know, he, he's come to grips with with uh, the pushback on his candidacy and his, his spot in the All-Star game. He talked to Gary Bettman on Thursday. The NHL ultimately made him feel welcome, he said. Um, and so that's uh, that's a, a good thing for all involved to finally have them embrace this, even, even though it was kicking and screaming. What do you make of the, the piece he wrote for the Players' Tribune, which came out, I think, the same day he was meeting with Gary Bettman? He he, he really called out the NHL and, and how they treated him in all of this. Why, why do you think he did that then? He did it because he read a lot of stories uh, leading up to the All-Star game that he felt mischaracterized the kind of player that he was. I mean, he, he he's the kind of guy who believes that the word goon is a slur. Um, it's it's not who he thinks he is. He thinks a goon is the guy who fights a heck of a lot more than John Scott does, is sort of brain dead, is is someone who just is uh, you know doesn't have the skill to, to belong in the league, and he doesn't see himself that way. So I think that the, the one part of it was definitely to be a bit autobiographical and kind of tell what his story is and let people know that he has a you know degree in engineering from Michigan Tech and things like that. But it was also a chance to pull the curtain back on what the Arizona Coyotes did as far as trading him the when they did and, and him feeling that it was spiteful for him not declining his all-star spot. And also to kind of explain that the NHL, for all that was going to happen this weekend with him, uh, was – asking him how his daughters felt about seeing him be an all-star in an effort to try to get him to step down from the game. And I think he felt like he needed to kind of shed light on all of that 
to let people get a better understanding of himself and, and also the sort of backroom pressures that were happening to try to uh, keep him out of this game. Okay, so then just to backstory that a little bit for people who are catching catching on, um, you know, he was dealt from Phoenix to Montreal, but not uh, to the uh, National Hockey League team, but he was sent down to the minors. So his trade was basically Phoenix to Newfoundland. Uh, what's next for John Scott then? Well, he, he addressed that last night. Um, you know, he's going to go play for the St. John's Ice Caps. His, his wife is due to deliver twins pretty much any moment. <laughs> so I think there's going to be some, some, some family time for him as well. But it's interesting, you know, in talking to some people last night after the game, um, a lot of people were wondering whether or not this is a new level of celebrity for this guy where, you know, he might get a contract after this season with another, say, American League hockey team just for being John Scott, just for being an attraction, and then just for being a guy that that people have come to know and like. Um, And and Scott himself said, you know, I don't know if this opens up a whole bunch of new doors for me or or what, uh, but he'd be just just as happy – playing a few more seasons of professional hockey or, or maybe just getting a nine to five job he says so i mean he's he's playing that common man card right to the end yeah right <laughs> well and you know i mean just the fact that yeah he's he's earning ahl money i'm sure he can put that degree to use at some point but you know 90 grand in his pocket a, a new vehicle just as he's about to have two <laughs> more kids you know it was just it was that nice human touch to it all yeah and, and again as we said before i mean if if it's not for the nhl pushing back as they did and, and having people behind the scenes asking him about how his family should feel about him being an all-star, uh, then this thing never gets to that point. You, you don't have people, you know, tearing up as they watch John Scott's two daughters wearing Coyotes jerseys and tutus, uh, you know, giving him hugs after the game and, and stuff. Like, it, it really does become this uh, hero's journey, this, like, folk hero, cult hero moment uh, that uh, – that I don't think any of us, even those, those those of us that weren't really worried about him being at the All Star Game and thought that it was going to be all in good fun, I don't think any of us realized how uh, powerful this this whole narrative would end up being. Was it a lightning in a bottle moment, though? Would it be perilous for the league to try to recreate this next year in Los Angeles? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, insofar as the fan voting aspect of it, I think they're going to clamp down pretty hard. I think the choices are going to be extraordinarily limited. Um, they should have learned their lesson from the previous All-Star game. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Uh, when Zegmas Gergensens was voted in as a, as a starter by fans in his native Latvia, they should have known that if you open up the voting to any player, you're going to have this sort of thing happen. So it'll be really restricted. We won't have another John Scott. And, and that's for the better. I mean, like the, to try to repeat these conditions where you have a player who has the comportment and personality and and uh, and everything else that Scott did had and he handled it so well and then you had these uh, you know corporate entities trying to stifle it from happening I mean it's it really is a, a very unique situation um, but the good news like I said for the NHL is that they don't necessarily need another John Scott story for this All Star format to work um, it really worked and uh, and and there was a lot of good things beyond John Scott to come out of this weekend. It'd be funny, though, if the NHL did have a campaign next November that said, do not even think about voting for so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's, and it's funny you bring up wrestling, too, because, yeah. like, I mean, it, it's it's pretty much an every few years cycle of some wrestler coming up and the uh, the big corporate meanies like Vince McMahon trying to stomp them down and keep them from winning the title. Like, it is a very, very sort of wrestling angle <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to this whole thing. But, 
but uh, but but it's the law of diminishing returns. I think if they try to do it again. Yeah, no kidding, it is. Hey, uh, thanks so much for the chat. Uh, people can read your bu- more at uh, Puck Daddy blog or excuse me, PuckDaddy.com, the Yahoo uh, Puck Daddy blog. Uh, Greg, I know you're busy. You probably got a day now. You got to line up uh, an interview with Mark Wahlberg or something like that about him playing John Scott in the Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll let you go. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, boys. Appreciate it. You too. He's he just Mark Wahlberg seems to be the natural fit. He's always playing the underdog athlete, isn't he? But he's short. Yeah. John Scott's like what six eight. Camera tricks are amazing. <laughs> they made they made Elijah Wood look like he was about two foot eight. Yeah, that's true. Uh, no, someone I saw last night. Someone actually photoshopped like a, a Disney movie poster with John Scott's picture and the Disney logo, and it it just it had that feel. I mean, John Scott's team could have easily lost the first game. John Scott could have you know not scored at all. And, you know, it would have been neat. But just the notion that he would go, that he would score, that his team would win, that it would be the MVP, that he'd get carried on the shoulders. I mean, it's just, if you pitched it as a script, it would just seem too hokey, too unbelievable. But uh, there it was. Why didn't they have Emilio Estevez coaching his team? Because then you would have <laughs> known the fix was in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was. I mean, it, it played out like a, like a WrestleMania script sure. where, you know, the... the the boss comes off as the bad guy, and the underdog, uh, you know, gets his uh, gets the comeuppance at the end, and you know, wins the belt, and then they they fade to black. It's just, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, but you know, good because you wouldn't have it any other way, right? It was ideal ending. We're gonna take a break right here. Come back. We'll uh, set up the next segment of the program after the news at twelve o'clock. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge. You are listening to News Talk seven seventy. All right, well, you know, this may well be the last time we really hear of John Scott. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there are a lot of NHL teams who think that he can make their team better. He cleared waivers just recently. He's uh, got traded to Montreal. They put him in the minors. Um, so th- this may be it for him. Although, as someone texted to say, he is a, uh, an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. So there might be, you know, even not an NHL team, but another AHL team or a semi-pro team who thought, yeah, you know what, this guy's a draw. This guy's a big name. We could sign him to a one-year contract and... Yeah, maybe there's enough of a curiosity factor still that'll carry over. I gotta wonder if he wants to do that though, right? Because I think a lot of these guys uh, will play in like the AHL for a couple of reasons. One, they believe uh, that they're you know one good game away from getting a, a shot at the show, or two, um, it's the best job they can get. Like it's a good gig, right? You make some pretty good bread playing in the AHL. But this guy's, you know, fancied himself uh, as a kind of fellow who could wear a suit to the office every day and work for GM. That's what he said he wanted to do coming out of uh, Michigan Tech. He's got a degree. So, you know, he's got four kids. He's got two kids now and two kids pretty soon. Does he want to, you know, play in a bus league? You know, it's interesting. Someone else texts to say, hey, you know what? Look, he's still a goon. Look at all the suspensions and fights. He's He's a dirty player. This was all publicity. It kind of became that way, and I mean, John Scott seems like a like a decent guy, but it is true he's he's not just a fighter. I mean, he's been suspended more than once uh, for dirty plays. So you know, it's it's hard to justify that kind of stuff. It's one thing to say, look, he's expected to go go out and fight, and that was the role he was given. Uh, but some of this other stuff, you know, that that's on him, and it's it's true. He has he has done stuff that was serious enough to get him suspended I have no on more I- than one occasion. Yeah, I have no idea why, though, the league would take the stance that they did. Because at, at some point, I mean, if you're picking on one player, you're picking on all the players, aren't you, in a way? Do they just look at him and say to the rest of the league, look, you're all just, you're all just, you know, the content here. We're the kings. You guys just go get on the ice and do as we tell you to. 
And I, th- I think that if I was in the, the PA, I would have probably been willing to push back and say, look, we got to, we got to stick up for our guy, first of all, because he's a union member. <laughs> he's an association member. But secondly, like, no, look, this is a, this is the deal. You know, we, we play the game and, and, and you don't, uh, you don't tell us which one of us are small, which one of us are scum. Well, it's still the NHL's events and yeah. it's still Nashville's event. And, you know, they, they could have said at the outset that there is no fan voting. That you know the the all stars will get picked, and that's that's that, and there would have been no problem with that, so they open it up and they they back themselves into this corner and they're lucky for them that as bad as they come off looking, they reap all the benefits yeah. the game was a hit, and uh, people were talking about the ratings were terrific and so it's it's funny because the n h l benefits by handling this in the worst way possible we've got to take a pause here the news to uh, twelve o'clock is next we're going to talk about the new Barbie dolls when we come back it's Kincaid and Breckenridge. this is news talk seven seventy